Oswald Cobblepug. <laughs> I'm <laughs> and, dying. And it's going to be Ozzy, obviously, I'm for dying. short. <laughs> this is incredible. Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host and N7 agent, Martha Sullivan, and I am here as always with my co-host. I am uh, Pete Romberg, a road agent. Uh, We're just doing agents this time. What kind of agent? A road agent. some road Is that agents. a reference I don't get yet? Uh, it's a Deadwood reference. It was in episode one. Oh. The road agents were the folks who killed uh, the little girl's family. Uh. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into how I felt about Deadwood in yes, a minute. <laughs> I'm, I am curious. Um, so we are kicking off June uh tonight june is our western month pete and i decided that there was no better way to celebrate the oncoming summer of vaccinated relative freedom than by getting down and dirty can you let me (laughs) (laughs) well now that pete has spoiled it um (laughs) i I just said hot vax summer yes hot vax summer um Anyway, we're going to get down and dirty with some frontier exploration, uh, really get down in the mud looking for that gold. Uh, (laughs) And we're going to talk about Westerns all this month. Um, But before we get into uh, introducing our our topic for tonight, uh, first, we are, as always, going to let you know what is stuck in our heads this week. Um, I... Just am going to say that omnipresent. Assume that my number one choice for this segment for the next two months or so is Mass Effect. <laughs> um, I won't bore our audience by waxing ad nauseum about it, but just just assume that that's happening in the background for me, basically all the time. Uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head? Uh, last uh, we're recording on a apparently it's Tuesday. Uh, so that's that's fun. <laughs> um, uh, but this uh this Sunday night or Monday time has no meaning, and it's Memorial Day week, so this is just doubly worthless. Um, this past week was the season finale of the HBO show Mayor of Easttown, starring Kate Winslet as a um rural Pennsylvania cop uh investigating a murder in her small town uh near Philadelphia. Um also stars Gene Smart, Guy Pierce, uh and uh Evan Peters among many others. Um I'm only 3 episodes in even though the season finale just premiered. Uh I watched the first episode when that came out, decided A, I liked it a lot and I'd keep watching it, but B, kind of wanted to like not watch it on a week by week basis and and you know store up some to watch two in a night or whatever so finally getting around to actually watching it um and i'm enjoying it a lot kate winslet is incredible uh much has been written about the accent that she is doing and how challenging it was for her to do um she sounds great as a non-native person who does not know what that accent should sound like she sounds great she sounds like what i'd imagine uh, she'd sound like um, and the rest of the cast is also incredible. Uh, it's a nice, windy, uh, you know, procedural murder show, um, where everyone is, uh, dysfunctional. Uh, it's, it's all dysfunction all the way down, and also there be some murders. Uh, so I have not yet started watching it. Um, I was not even really sure what it was mm-hmm. until, like, two weeks ago. Um, all I knew was that my Twitter feed was going wild for it, but I I did not really, <laughs> I had not looked into what it encompassed, um, but I'm into it. I will be watching soon. I, I hadn't realized that um, the season finale was just this last Sunday. So I learned the season finale was this past Sunday when... Um... Uh, my wife Marn and I tried to watch the last, uh, last means, uh, the new mutants on HBO on Sunday and just had all sorts of technical troubles. We thought it was our, our Wi-Fi, Uh, and then it turned out everyone on Twitter was like, HBO, we're all just trying to watch the finale of Mar of East Town or Mayor of East Town. Like, why, why are you having so many troubles? It's like, ah, good. It's not just me. Also, I guess that show is over now. 
Did I tell you about what happened when I tried to watch Godzilla vs. Kong the first time? No. It would play for about 12 seconds and then pause oh, no. for a second. Yes, I had to stop because it was making me crazy. Yeah. And my only explanation was that everyone on the planet was also trying to watch Godzilla versus <laughs> Kong. Uh, that's that's very possible. Uh, but anyway, my stuck in my head this week, I um, am a librarian. And with that comes certain literary superpowers, one of which is sometimes I get to read books before they are available to the general public. Uh, right now, I'm in the middle of an advanced reader copy of a book called The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. Uh, it is an epic horror novel truly after my own heart. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, those genres alone tell me that it was like tailor-made for you. Uh, it's incredible. It has a haunted house. It has interdimensional travel. It has a demonic possession question mark we're not really sure <laughs> uh we have a serial killer who is unstuck in time oh, there is what? this is great i know it's amazing and it really is making me realize how much i appreciate like an epic horror novel like i feel like everyone knows like everyone's got epic fantasy epic historical fiction like those are all very tried and true like those are genres that people know work in this sort of epic format mm -hmm. um and i don't always feel that like outside of stephen king that epic horror gets as much attention and i really feel like if it is played well um that it's it's really a genre that works well in this like huge sprawling sweeping uh story format mm -hmm, definitely um particularly because one of my very favorite kinds of stories just in general are things that examine like intergenerational stories and i think there's a ton of really cool stuff you can do with like um the nature of like the nature of a location being evil or yeah. like a curse on a family horror is um, like all about intergenerational terror trauma uh evil etc yeah it frequently can be mm -hmm. so i'm about 50 percent of the way through i love it stuff is really starting to hit the fan uh it is out in august and if you are a horror fan really of any stripe because this one really has something for everybody um, I highly recommend it. I am adding that to my Goodreads right now. Yeah, Chuck Wendig also a couple of years ago published a book called Wanderers, which is about a plague that sweeps the nation and causes people to start sleepwalking. No one knows where they're going, but if you try to stop them, they explode. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is the stand-esque without actually being the stand yeah and yeah. actually don't tell anybody but i liked it more than i liked the stand. <laughs> the problem with the stand is that the idea is so amazing and then like 800 pages in um you know it's shaggy it deals with some of king's best tropes but also some of his less great tropes and it's from the 80s so it's you know some parts of its gender and racial politics have not aged as well as they otherwise would have correct uh, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we are going to discuss uh, the Western, the closing of the frontier, and how the West was lost, which is the incredibly clever title that I came up with for this episode. <laughs> it's a good title. We'll be right back. And we are back. So today's Western exploration, uh, we are going to be talking about the closing of the frontier in American history uh, and how that gets portrayed in the Western cinematic genre. Um, I'm going to start. Well, actually, before we get into our individual homeworks, Pete, did we want to address any um, larger 
situational questions first, or do we want to jump right in? Well, I'd, I'd say that one thing I was interested in this episode is the... There's a theme running through many Westerns that is entirely based on a very popular uh, historiographical thesis from the 1890s, which is sort of that, like, the Wild West was... Um, was, like, the last great American frontier. There's all this tension in many Westerns of civilization versus the frontier life. Um, and, and like, there are benefits with civilization, but there are also downsides with civilization. Many Westerns deal with the idea of, like, the end of the Western. Uh, Unforgiven being a great example, where it's like, these old guys no longer fit into this new world that is being built. And I think that's a very fun place to to have a very tropey genre that we're all intimately familiar with the tropes of where where there's this frisson of like it's an exciting time now and there's infinite freedom but also we all know that 10 years down the line that freedom is going to come to an end and it's a time of great and climactic changes where some people are going to benefit from them tremendously and other people are going to suffer tremendously um I think westerns are are really unique genres because of not only the tropes that they embody but also literally the the temporal like like the time that they live in and the the time and the ethos that they're trying to capture there's always this and the wild bunch I think gets into this a lot this idea of things are changing and our way of life as we have been living it like we can see it coming to an end, whether it's whether we retire or go out in a blaze of glory. Like there's a reason that we're doing this one last job, and it's not just because we're getting old. It's because this kind of job can no longer be done by anyone. Yeah. So with that, I'll introduce our first piece of homework. Um, I selected for viewing the Wild Bunch, uh, which is a 1969 movie written and directed by Sam Peckinpah and written by Wallen Green. Uh, it stars William Holden as Pike, Ernest Borgnine as Dutch, Robert Ryan as Thornton, Edmund O'Brien as Sykes, Warren Oates as Lyle Gorch, Jamie Sanchez as Angel, Ben Johnson as Tector Gorch, Emilio Fernandez as Mapache, uh, and then a bunch of other people who probably look more familiar to you if you are super into Westerns that were made and produced in the 60s i think a lot of these guys show up in yeah. many of those uh but yeah the wild bunch is about pike bishop uh who leads a group of outlaws who are as pete said looking for their one last score uh the opening of the movie is them shooting up a railroad office uh searching for a cache of silver um they are ambushed by Deke Thornton, who used to be uh, Pike's partner, uh, who is hunting down uh, Pike and his wild bunch uh, with a posse of bounty hunters. Um, the opening of this movie is incredibly bloody and fascinating to watch. Uh, yes. The cinematography in this movie is just top to bottom incredible. Uh, but anyway, they... Um, shoot each other up a lot of people are killed uh and pike and his gang use the cover of a temperance union parade to escape they realize that the silver that they were trying to steal is actually a sack full of washers uh set there to lure them into a trap which means that once again they have to go on the hunt for that one last job uh they are as they move uh, across the Rio Grande and into Mexico, um, they are being pursued by Thornton and his uh, bounty hunter posse. Uh, and all of this kind of comes to a head when Pike takes up with General Mapache, a corrupt officer in the Mex Mexican Federal Army, uh, who tells him about a weapons cache um, on a U.S. Army train that if they can steal it for Apache, uh, he will, you know, pay them for the job. Because this is set during the Mexican Revolution. So you have the, the Federales are fighting Pancho Villa and the uh, other various revolutionary groups. So everyone needs American guns. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the setup. Um, Thornton and his bounty hunters are 
ever closer. Uh, and we end up with a very bloody confrontation as everyone sells each other out um, in order to save their own skins. Um, and at the end of the movie, <laughs> Thornton is pretty much the only, Deke Thornton is pretty much the only one left standing. Uh, and he decides instead of returning to uh, America and quote unquote civilization that he is going to go help out the Mexican rebels. Mm -hmm. Which honestly, good choice. Recapture, uh, to recapture the glory that is kind of the undercurrent of what all of these men have been seeking the whole movie. Um. I loved this movie. <laughs> I had never seen it before. Same. Um, but I thought that the the filmmaking was impeccable. Um, I did. I I watch everything with the captions on now, which is good because otherwise I don't know that I would have had any idea who any of these people were. <laughs> but honestly, I don't know that it mattered. Yeah, I had wiki up just to get everyone's names, but like. They don't say their names that often, so it almost didn't matter. Yeah, like, as long as you can kind of pinpoint Pike and Thornton and know that under this entire story is their... Like, these two men are orbiting each other this entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's enough flashback work and all the rest of it so that we learn their relationship, uh, you know, going back years. But yeah, so this this movie sort of connects to our thesis in that it's about a bunch of old guys who used to be, you know, adventurous and bloodthirsty and rowdy and wild kind of coming to grips with the fact that they got to stop at some point. Like there's nothing left for them. And everyone in this movie is basically trying to get enough so that they don't have to try they're trying to relive when they were young and rowdy so that they can stop being young and rowdy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of. Well, and at the same time, there's a conflict of not just are they getting old, but that modernity is catching up with them. There's a scene where they're sort of like looking at, at the general's car, um, which is, you know, brand new car out here in the Wild West. Like, that's going to replace horses. Um, we've got machine guns now, which just didn't exist before. The The opening scene, the opening robbery, is so bloody and so violent, which A, is just an absolute just Sam Peckinpah thing. But B, I think it's kind of trying to show that, like, things have gotten, you know, it used to be fun to go out and have an adventure and rob a train, and now it's horrific. Uh, to, to rob a train. And obviously, it was always horrific to go and, and rob a train. Like, it was always bloody and violent and everything. But now, now I, I think the movie is trying to say that violence is is landing more heavily, um, especially as the railroads are cracking down harder and harder and harder to try to, you know, put, it, put a stop to, to it all entirely. Which is also a really interesting meta-commentary on the Western genre as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that I discovered in doing some background reading for this episode is that almost every Western that comes to my mind when I think of like a classic Western belongs to this family of quote unquote revisionist Westerns. Mm -hmm. So the, the Western film genre, which has been around since the 1930s um, <laughs> or, or even 1903. <laughs> yes, like the first the first moving picture that had plot and story was The Great Train Robbery, which is a Western. Yep. Um, but as as opposed to um, something that is like more classical and heroic driven and like shiny and idealized, the revisionist Western has to do with this kind of recontextualizing um, the West and the frontier and the fact that like out in these circumstances, you don't get a lot of heroes because of the things that people are driven to do um, to survive, to, uh, you know, to forge this frontier. Um, and I think that a lot of the wild bunch is in conversation with those former movies showing that like, there may have been movies made in the past that glorified the heroes that rescued the train. Um, 
but that the reality of those situations were probably much like getting to saving that train was probably much more violent and um, dangerous and unrewarding Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, than movie going audiences might have wanted to admit. I I had not thought about this until literally you you were saying that so many of those classical westerns were also made during the the Hayes Code era, so your your heroes had to be white hats, um and and your violence had to be sanitized. And here by 1969, the Hayes Code has come to an end. We've got we've got the New Bloods in Hollywood, uh, shaking up Hollywood, and here here is one of them shaking up westerns and and having the heroes be. Uh, like black hat robbers and having it be violent and gritty and awful and and really like it's a sea change in so many directions both both within uh w- within the narrative obviously but also like within the broader context of when it's being created so what something you just said is really interesting to me um you think that pike and his group are supposed to be the heroes of this movie um they're at the very least the uh the people that we follow. I was going to say, one of the things that I think that this movie is also doing is really asking us to think hard about what we consider to be like heroes or villains. Yeah, like, w- these are not, these are not even just anti-heroes or anti-villains. <laughs> right. I, I don't think there are any heroes in this movie. So uh, protagonists yeah. might be the better term. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that there very intentionally aren't any heroes in this movie. Yeah. But similarly, there aren't really any villains <laughs> other than, like, maybe you could say uh, Mapache is the villain. But, yeah, you know, he's, he's he's only a villain because, you know, he's he's against our protagonists. Like, he's just as duplicitous as anyone else. Well, and just like everyone else in this movie, he's trying to get what's his. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just in a different context. Yep. So yes, I, I think that this movie is a really good... I also think it's hilarious that when this movie came out, it made people so mad. <laughs> well, I like... <laughs> again, the reputation of this movie and all the reviews are like, it's so bloody, it's so violent. And I'm like, I've seen Tarantino. This is nothing, right? you know? But but, I, but I can also this, see why this... in 1969 it's like, oh, yeah, that you're shooting up those temperance people? Okay. All right. I loved that as an illustration of how we have tried to impress order on the wild west Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the fact that this opens on a train station where a bunch of people are swearing to never drink again (laughs) right that immediately gets shot all the hell is like this is this is trying to impose order on chaos and having chaos be like nah f you yep yep (laughs) But at the same time, it really, like, imme- like this was in the U.S., immediately they have to go across the border, and almost the rest of the movie is in Mexico. Um, and I think that's because the U.S. is, you know, it, by 1913, winning that war on, on chaos, as it were. Like, civilization is, is, you know, putting its last feet down on the, the wildness of the West, and the the lengths that the train station is, or like the train company is going to, to get rid of these outlaws, these bandits, is I think part of that. Like, yeah, it doesn't work here. Yeah, it's a horrible murder of a bunch of like temperance people. But that's really more like the death throes of of the wildness of the West, rather than, um, you know, like a successful counterattack, as it were. Do you also think that it was maybe easier for an audience in 1969 to imagine Mexico as the wild frontier than it was to imagine, like, California, where a lot of these people probably were watching this movie or living in? Probably, but I also think that, like, a porous border between Mexico and the U.S. is very much like just a Western trope. Sure. So, I, like... Yeah, I'm sure it was easier to be like, oh yeah, Mexico, it's wild, sure, whatever racist ideas uh, underscoring that um but i also think it's just like it's part of the western like language sure um but yeah i was very so one of i almost wanted to try harder for this episode to pick a more like classical western before i really understood the distinction between that and a revisionist western mm-hmm. 
Um, and I realized that, as I said, all of the movies that I tend to, that like spring to my mind as being typical Westerns are all revisionist. And I wondered if that was because we moved on to the revisionist Western real fast because that white hat story is pretty boring. I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, and we were talking off air about this, but part of it, yeah, it's way more interesting to tell a story about some some narrow duels. Um or or even um I feel like uh revisionist westerns also have your morally ambiguous white hat, like uh, Rooster Coburn, you know, in in True Grit. Cogburn. Cogburn, thank you. Um is like a great example of this. Um and and a pure white hat, like a Lone Ranger type, is is yeah, kinda less interesting. Um, but I also think that that classical westerns really lived and thrived in B movies and TV serials. So mm -hmm. there were like two decades of nonstop westerns on television that we just don't like. A lot of those tropes just seeped into culture through many different ways, partly through what the revisionist westerns took from them, partly from like old Looney Tunes cartoons or whatever. Um, but so, like, we are deeply aware of the language of those westerns, but we just don't consume them anymore because uh, nobody's watching Bonanza anymore. <laughs> Fair. Uh, with that, do you want to transition to the TV show that we did pick? That's a great transition. Yes. Uh, I picked the um, 2004 HBO series Deadwood, uh, created by David Milch and starring Timothy Oliphant as Seth Bullock and Ian McShane as Al Swearingen. Many other people are in this, Molly Parker as Alma Garrett. Uh, and in the episodes that we watched, uh, Keith Carradine as Wild Bill Hickok are definite standouts. Uh, also, Powers Booth as Cy Tolliver. I'll shout out Powers Booth whenever he shows up in anything. Um, Deadwood is about the town of Deadwood. Uh, it's a real place. Um, it is the 1870s, and Deadwood is in, uh, on a Native American reservation. Um, it is an illegal settlement being set up by gold prospectors and folks looking to make a buck off the gold prospectors. Uh, we've got, uh, Timothy Oliphant's Seth Bullock is a former marshal from the Montana Territory, uh, common to Deadwood to start a hardware factory. Ian McShane as Elsweringen is the uh, saloon-slash-brothel owner and uh, bigwig in town. He's got his hands in everything. Um, and in the first episode as well, Wild Bill Hickok comes into town and uh, hangs out for a while to gamble, ostensibly to prospect, but uh, he doesn't actually care about that. Um, Calamity Jane is with him. Um, we also have uh, some rich folks from New York out prospecting and getting... Um, uh, swindled. Including um, Lassiter from Psych. Oh, is that who that is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Everyone is in this show. Yeah. Um, and I know that when this show ended, I think Lost uh, just scooped up all the actors who were out of work um, because J.J. Abrams except was for, a fan of it. I was going to say, except, except for Timothy for... Oliphant, who went on to make Justified yes. another kind of Western. Yes, indeed. Um, you tweeted that, like, Timothy Oliphant looks different in everything he's in. Every single thing. I agree. Anytime he's in anything, I'm like, who is that? Yes. Oh, that's Timothy. I love Timothy Oliphant, but I didn't know he looked like Did that. not know it was him. Yeah. Well, and having, like, his, the goatee and the hat were mm -hmm. really what was goofing me up. Well, and so for me, this is the first thing I saw him in. So when he doesn't have a goatee and a mustache and a hat, I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> the first thing I saw him in was Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, he's in he that? Baby. Well, yeah, I guess, the I guess other that's. Cop. Oh, I guess he's that's the first thing I saw him in. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but so a, a large part of this show is like the main, uh, this show lasted for three seasons. And then two years ago, they came out with a movie, um, which was very fun for those who like the show, like me. Um, a large part of the thesis of this show and uh, the creator, uh, David Milch, was very uh, intentional about this, is that conflict between will like total anarchic, you know, frontier town and the coming civilization. Um, no spoilers, because you should have done your homework. In episode four, um, Wild Bill Hickok is shot dead. Uh, and in episode five, then we have to deal with his killer and put him on trial. But that, of course, has complications because um, 
Deadwood and the entire territory is trying to get annexed by the United States. If we have a trial, now we have a legal system. And Elsewhere Engine is very worried that um, the big vipers in Washington will uh, take that as a, you know, screw off. And it's really hard to talk about the show without slipping into the language, which is not acceptable for our podcast. That's um, correct. So, uh... Uh, you know, it's like, like, what do we do where we need to enact justice, but we can't do it through any sort of legal system, partly because we don't have a legal system, and partly because we don't want to create one, because that will interfere with our future plans of getting absorbed into the, into the United States. Um, and then once they are absorbed into the United States, like, more conflict and tensions. Uh, eventually you get the Pinkertons, you get, um, uh, Comstock, and, and you get, like, big business mining interests, um, Lots of, of fun corporate versus independent uh, dramas happening. Um, union versus corporate. Uh, all that good stuff. Um, the other thing, uh, speaking of, that the show is famous for is uh, an incredible uh, number of F-bombs per minute and other just language in general. Combined with a strangely heightened, almost Shakespearean writing um, with everything else that they're saying. Part of that, and uh, Martha, I know that rubbed you the wrong way uh, for a lot of it. I don't know if you ever got over it. Um, it just got, it got so exhausting. So, it, like, after after a while, I was like, okay, I get it. We're crass and there are no rules. Like, you could at least, what one of the things that I, just to compare it to the Wild Bunch, like, I don't think the language in the Wild Bunch is much better. It's just way more imaginative. Mm -hmm. Like, in Deadwood, it's the same slurs over and over again. And it got to the point where I was like, you need to pay me $5 every time somebody <laughs> on this show says... It's your uh, Calamity Jane penny jar. Uh, yeah. Um, it just, it got so... It just got exhausting. Like, sure. I, I'm, I'm not a person who is offended by crass language. Like, I... It, it's fine. I, I had to train myself not to swear as much when I started working <laughs> in public libraries. Yep. But like it, I don't care. Just this, it was like every other, it's so relentless. And that... so this, this probably will not change your opinion on it, but to contextualize it, it was a, they did a lot of research in like the language of the time and what a, a camp like this would have been like. And they, in their research, they found that it would it would have been as crude and as crass as this, except the preferred, like the 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 language back then, like the the crudest and crassest sort of thing would uh, have been blasphemes. And they like they wrote some scripts, and they're like, this just sounds silly if we're <laughs> blaspheming because like it for for a modern audience, it's like, what do you do? Like that sounds quaint and silly, and who cares? So they updated the language for two thousand four to match, like, 2004's most extreme and most, you know, like, over-the-top swearing to hit that, to, to get the feel, um, without actually being, you know, what, it's accurate instead of precise, or precise instead of accurate, whichever. Um, well, but that, that also, that's... like, you're like, interesting story, still didn't like it. Well, I was gonna say, that's so funny, because I, I feel like this is definitely a product of when we were, when, when filmmakers were, like, and my show is going to be gritty and real yeah. and like definitely sort of reveling reveling in that quote unquote realism, which really just feels like an excuse to make things really dirty and violent and, um, you know, swear a lot. I'm going to pause real fast and say, I did get into it. I, I was like, wondering, because <laughs> the first couple episodes, you were like, when am I going to like this it, show? But it seemed it by truly, the fifth episode you were. It truly took me four full episodes before I was like, fine, I'm on board. <laughs> um, and part of that is because could not tell the difference between many of these characters mm -hmm. until, until like with a couple of exceptions until like episode four or five. Right, you had, like, um, probably Swearingen and Bullock and Wild Bill Hickok because of his long-flowing locks. Yeah, and could not have told you, like, could not have reliably told you anybody's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much enjoying Brad Dourif. Could not tell you his character name if you paid me money. Um, Doc I think Cochran. he's the doctor. Yeah. Yeah, he's the doctor. Uh, and, um, yeah, he's great. Uh, with uh, Iros, you haven't seen him in since Dune. 
He was uh, in Dune, yeah, right, Brad Dorf? Yeah. Anyway. I don't think so. That's Sting. You might be thinking No, Dune, of. he is in Dune. He's the twisted mentat. Oh. Hey, the more you yeah, know. Yeah, with, with the crazy eyebrows. So. Um, but no, this this show just really revels in a lot of things that are just not up my alley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like people's personality traits are basically dirty or angry or drunk or all three. Mm-hmm. Um I don't really know what the dramatic action was in the first like three episodes. <laughs> um I, I will say that this show really gets going when um Timothy Oliphant's character and Ian McShane's character have to work together because Timothy Oliphant is lawful stick up his butt and Ian McShane is probably like neutral evil. Um and it's always very fun when those two forces have to like those two alignments have to put aside their differences and deal with larger problems um but like obviously that was not happening this far into the show <laughs> um uh, the next yeah, episode I... that we didn't watch is a pand of smallpox pandemic sweeping through the camp so uh what is your tolerance for watching pandemic related content right now yeah no kidding um let us talk about the trial for a moment because i think that that was the reason that you picked as many episodes as you did was so yes. that we could get to the trial. Yes. So I, I think that I missed something. I thought that the reason that Swearingen didn't want to have the trial was basically because trying to impose law on a place where there is no law is antithetical to the place. I did not realize it was because their goal was eventually to become part of the United States. Yeah, so they they are an illegal encampment, uh, right? Like, like it, and and they are you know based on treaties with the Sioux, they should not be there. So if the U.S. government decided to wipe them off the map, it could. If this if the Sioux wanted to try to wipe them off the map, the U.S. could turn a blind eye. Legally speaking, um, we all know that. That that would never happen. Uh, but, like, from their perspective at the time, they don't know that. Um, and so they are trying to... Everyone there is either just prospecting for gold or trying to get rich off the gold prospectors. But those looking to create something there, like Swearingen and uh, Alifant, anyone else building anything, um, they're hoping that all their claims, and even the prospectors who are, like, buying claims to various parts of the river, I guess? Hills? Mountains? are all hoping that those claims and the land rights and all the rest of it are recognized if and when eventually they do get annexed by the U.S. Um, so they're really kind of walking a tightrope of they're not they're not legal, but maybe one day they will be. And what's it going to take to get from here to there? Um, so I guess that I had assumed that part of the attraction of Deadwood was that lawlessness. I'm sure that's part of the attraction, like, in the short term, but I I think for those with a stake, if you're just a random person panning for gold, um, and you're, you're, like, looking to get rich quick, the lawlessness is probably a big selling point. Um, but if you're someone who who has a, a real stake in the town, whether it's because you've you've built a shop and therefore you've, like, spent money and invested capital and all the rest of it, then that lawlessness, while it might be good, can only go so far, and I think there's a long-term looking to the future. Um, this okay, also... So, mm, go so ahead. this, in contrast to the Wild Bunch, which sort of mourns the loss of this frontier and freedom, Deadwood is actually in favor of it. The Wild Bunch is taking place at, like, the frontier is closed, there are no new places to go, and and all the avenues are being closed off slowly, one by one. Dusk is setting. This one is, we are, you know, we don't know that in 20, 30 years the frontier will close. Like, the frontier is wide open, and we are going where we can to do what we can and forge a life for ourselves. This is that frontier thesis I mentioned earlier of um, the frisian of, like, rugged individualism. Um, and, you know, sort of that's that's what made America was this constantly, th this constant frontier where people could go and be in, in that liminal space between 
you know, old European values and and that all create and and nothingness and wildness and that all created American spirit. Um, this thesis was incredibly popular uh, in academic circles in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Remained popular in pop culture up through even the revisionist period, but is basically not like accepted in modern academia as as legitimate. Um, there was yeah, there was part of that thesis where I was like, except that European values are st- still hold such a tight sway over everything we do. Yeah, my favorite part of the thesis about is about how it's saying like the government didn't encourage people to go west. It's like my dude. <laughs> Cheap land for white people. Don't know a better encouragement than that. Mm-hmm. Um and by dude, uh, my dude, I do mean uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, who's the originator of this thesis. Uh, if you've taken like a 300 level American history course, you probably heard his name because uh, it still comes up in historiography of American history and sidebar. Um, so so to your point, Martha, this isn't I, I don't think it's necessarily celebrating the introduction of civilization. I think it's it's really focused on the froth and the frisson of being in that space of like, we, we like literally a year ago, we carved this town out of the hills and, and built the first buildings. And we're hoping that in another year we get annexed by the United States. And so we are like right between these two things. Um, and even once we're annexed, that's not like, Oh, now civilization is here. It's like, cool. We raise a flag. Uh, we play a little song. And then things basically go back to normal because we're still in the Dakota territories. So it's not like there's a <laughs> lot of law happening here in in uh, 1874 or whatever. It was very strange to watch so many people get killed in one way or another. And then all of a sudden to have that matter. Mm-hmm. Like well, it's, a it's lot because of the guy who got die. killed mattered. Yeah. And that was that was kind of what was so interesting to me is that like. Oh, you can kill anybody as long as it's not a guy we like. Well, and also as long as it's not a walk up to him in a bar and shoot him in the back of the head when you're not the owner of the bar. You know, like it's it's that sort of like if you kill someone by pushing him off a cliff in the wilderness and then like bludgeoning him to death with a rock because the fall didn't do it. <laughs> that's just a good old fashioned stakes, you know, <laughs> like that's going to happen to anyone. Yeah, he fell off the cliff. It's fine. You did your due diligence. If you've got your road agent who uh, failed to follow your orders and you slit his throat in your own office of your own establishment and then feed him to the pigs. Well, who's to say, but you don't walk up in someone else's bar and shoot a paying customer in the back of the head. And you especially don't do it if that's the most famous man in camp. Fair. But was I, a little I, was a little wild that that guy got off. Yes, yeah. Um, spoiler: He gets uh captured later, tried in Yankton, and uh, found guilty because Yankton is actually in the Dakota Territory, so they could use U.S. justice. Um, found guilty and hanged to death. Oh yeah, I assumed that when Bullock went after him, I was like, well, this guy's getting it. Well, and, and Bullock being Bullock, uh, he's not just going to shoot him, he's going to capture him and bring him to town for justice. Because Bullock is lawful, stick up his butt as his yes. alignment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did eventually start getting into a little bit more. Um, yeah, I will probably finish it. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at 36 episodes, like, that's Mm, love that. Yeah, uh, plus a movie at the end. <laughs> we'll see how I feel when we get there. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so one of the bigger picture questions I want to pose to you, not just about these two pieces of media, but to kind of keep in mind as we progress through our next few episodes. Um, so America, and when I say America, I do mean white people. Like mm-hmm. I, I would like to make that clear right now. America does not have a lot in the way of, like, myth, because we're a very young country. And I was wondering if part of the popularity of Westerns in our pop culture was partially due to the fact that it kind of offers us a sort of myth for people to um, enjoy and hang on to. Like, a lot of the character archetypes that you see pop up in westerns um you also see in like 
Greek mythology. Mm. Um, and I, I just wondered if you thought that that had any, if that held any water. Um, I think in general, Americans are kind of hungry for like a folklore of their own. Like it's why we're so obsessed with Bigfoot and cryptids and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I did wonder if the Western was partially um, another way of exploring a kind of very distinctly American type of myth. I, I, I push back a little bit on the idea of like Americans don't have any myths because our entire knowledge of the Revolutionary War period is nothing but one giant myth. <laughs> um, but I, I absolutely take your point that other than, like, there's the Revolutionary War. I mean, but that's the same kind of thing. Like, we don't really have mythology. We have folk heroes. Right, right. Um, like, you've, you've got, in addition to the Revolutionary War, you've got, like, Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed and Davy Crockett. Um, and then many of whom I would say contribute to that kind of Western landscape. Absolutely. They were the original, uh, th they were Western frontiersmen back when that meant Ohio, uh, rather than Montana. Um, and I, I think it's, yeah, like the American, the American founding is a myth because obviously it's the founding. You do a big myth out of that. And then the next 100 years of American history saw a increasingly like a, a frontier that just keeps getting expanded and expanded and expanded. So our entire, all, everyone who's not part of civilization is inherently part of the frontier. And we had 100 years of constantly expanding frontiers. And out of that came a lot of different and distinctly American folklore and folk heroes. And that all culminated with the Western, um, like, cause cowboys were the last of, of those frontiers. Um, we don't have Paul Bunyan and Davy Crockett, who was a real person, uh, and Johnny Appleseed as as strongly in our minds, I think partly because they were like the old frontier, right? Like they were like Paul Bunyan's Minnesota. That's not the frontier. That's Minnesota. Like Davy Crockett died at the Alamo, but like he got his name in like Tennessee and Kentucky. That's not the frontier. That's, you know, oh, Tennessee are... and Kentucky. We are going to talk about what the frontier means. We're just not going <laughs> to we're just not going to do it tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so the, the West is in, as soon as like the quote unquote, the closing of the frontier in 1890, um, the West was the last frontier, um, you know, like barring the space program and, and cyberspace and all the rest of it, it was the last physical frontier, which is why I think that the, that became sort of the canonical frontier that became the one that we all gravitate to and tell the stories of because you know, it's it's it sort of had the highest the highest resonance. Uh and then it it was also so close to the invention of filmmaking that it was like a lot of early Hollywood actors were former cowboys. Um and and actors I mean both like actors and also stuntmen. Um, you know, like you you spent time wrangling cows and then you went and did a bunch of stunts because it's not any more dangerous than wrangling cows. Um, and and so I think it was just like it was a very early sort of infusion in, into Hollywood, which is the true American myth making machine. I also came up with all of that on the spot. So asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. No, I love it. One of my other propositions, um, and you can cut this out if you decide it has more of a place in one of our future episodes, um, but whether or not um, comic book movies are our this generation of Westerns. I, I absolutely think it is, yeah. <laughs> or rather, that Westerns were the first kind of proto-comic book movies. I mean, I I think it's definitely true that westerns used to be the american myth like the quintessential american story used to be a western story now the quintessential american story is a superhero story i would have to think about that one and much like westerns we get your classical age of superheroes then you get your revisionists you get your neos you got your uh you know oh, deconstructions shoot. you've got your subversions you got your anti deconstructions 
I mean, but that's true for almost any right any movement in pop culture that goes on for long enough. Right, and and has been eventually following. will yeah. eventually be in conversation with itself. Right, but like I think only westerns. Mm. Westerns and superheroes are definitely two where those conversations happen, like on the big screen, in the in the the the, the like the middle of popular culture. Oh, for sure. No, I don't disagree with you. Just sometimes I have to disagree with you. Because... Yeah, right. Because because otherwise it's a boring podcast. Because <laughs> you're not allowed to be right. <laughs> Uh, anything else we want to say in this our kickoff western episode? You have a a note here, and we can cut this if it's not useful. Of reclaiming identity through crime. Oh, so yeah, that was just something that I was thinking about. It it feels like, particularly in kind of the one last job type story that a lot of what you get are people trying to reclaim their former glory. Um, and frequently the way that they do that is through crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know if that is really applicable. Um, I don't know that I've watched enough Deadwood to be able to draw any direct parallels to anybody. I guess, I guess actually a more accurate thesis would be people using the exploration of the frontier to reclaim their identity yes in whatever that looks like so like you have in the wild bunch you have people committing crimes in deadwood you have people coming to deadwood to um pan for gold and make money and like establish who they are uh bullock and his partner are trying to do that through commerce um, but everybody is using this kind of blank slate frontier town as a way to establish their identity well, and I, I feel like this is uh, the most obvious of spoilers for Deadwood, so I feel very okay spoiling this plot. I mean, point. it's over, it's like 15 right. years old. Right, so. also, there's also that. Um, but, like, Bullock was a lawman in Montana. He's packing up and moving to Deadwood to put that chapter of his life behind him and become, you know, a... Uh, uh, general supply like a general goods store operator mining goods store operator do capitalism and it will not surprise you that at some point uh he picks up a badge again because that's who he is well that's (laughs) i mean that's who he is even when it's not who he is right exactly so it's but like the the show is like it's him grappling (laughs) with like he is a lawman he is putting that behind him to try to do something else and uh that's not what like he's he just can't do that. He can't let that part of himself die because that's just so deeply ingrained into who he is. And I think people Westerns just, play with that a lot. People just keep doing crimes. Right, in front of him <laughs> or like near him. <laughs> he walks He walks out of the courtroom and is like, get my go bag. I've got a criminal <laughs> <Yes. to> hunt. <laughs> also, I expected this outcome, so obviously I packed my go bag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... Yeah, like, just the way he carries himself, it's like, oh, yeah, you are, you're a guy who will throw down for a law. Um, but thinking of movies like Unforgiven, where, like, so many Western movies are about people who have, quote-unquote, retired being called back into one last job. Um, and it's like, you can, you can maybe put the past behind you and try to start a new leaf because it's the West and, and you can go one town over where no one's heard of you and you can, like, make something new of yourself but also maybe you can't escape the ghosts of your past. I feel like those two ideas are are in conflict in a lot of westerns and drive a lot of like the plot of of some of the the more interesting ones. It is really interesting to think about something like the Magnificent 7 mm-hmm. um where you have a bunch of basically like criminals because they're always criminals um being who they are but it's actually about the audience realizing that who they are is pretty great. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would argue very strongly that the Magnificent Seven is not about anybody trying to reclaim who they are, but it's about the town and us, the audience, understanding that who they are is more than like the crimes that they have committed. Yeah, and and for the the Seven, it's almost like proving who they are for some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I also just will always find an excuse to talk about the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> Uh, of you're, which, of, you're of course talking about the new version, right? No, 
Um, I was just about to say, every iteration is good. Mm-hmm. That is a hill. That is a hill that I will die on. There's every... only it, it's seven samurai, and then the two versions. Or are there other versions? Those are the three that I know of. Cool. I I would not be surprised if um. Like that that trope is such a good trope. That, yeah, if like, Kurosawa borrowed it from someone like if, if right. Kurosawa borrowed it initially from somewhere else. Right. Or again, if there have been many other authorized or unauthorized adaptations. Yes. Like this feels like a story that has been made and remade. Right. Um uh namely in everybody's D D campaign at least one time. Listen. It's <laughs> a great story. Right, yeah. The peasants need some help from bandits. It's also kind of the plot of Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, oh, every iteration movie. of the se- of <laughs> Magnificent Seven is good. <laughs> well, that that's so, that's all I've got. To, I mean, like, on the one hand, it's like I could talk about this in 500 different directions. But also, we got two more episodes to talk about this. We have so. two more episodes. Pete, what are we talking about? What is our theme for next episode? Our theme for next episode is how Westerns play with American masculinity. We're going to be looking at a example of like the the Westerns creating the masculine archetype, gruff, individualistic, uh, but intelligent and savvy uh, and willing to do anything. Um, and then we're going to be looking at the subversion of that trope. What are you assigning? I am assigning the first version, the gruff and individualistic, but also savvy and intelligent. Um, there are also some versions of this that are, like, sweet or, you know, trying to live a better life for your future progeny. Uh, but that's not the movie I'm assigning. I'm assigning the good, the bad, and the ugly, starring the the typifier of a certain kind of American masculinity, Clint Eastwood. Um, and also Eli Wallach and Levon Cleef, and directed by Sergio Leone. I have picked 2019's First Cow, directed by Kelly Reichardt and starring uh, John Magaro and uh, Orion Lee. And a cow. Just and one. And e- Evie the cow, who has a credit on IMDb. She yes. is the most beautiful cow you will ever see. <laughs> um, I will talk about this more next episode, but I need everyone who's listening right now to understand that I love this movie so much. I made the food in it that they make. Oh, exciting. Um, do so, you watch Binging with Babish? I do. I Did you use his recipe? No, I just used one. It's okay. a real, it's yeah, a real like, simple. Sure. You, you got recipe. the recipe from the movie. <laughs> Yes, pretty much. <laughs> um, I I also want the viewers to or the listeners to know that our three week month long western might have stemmed from Martha being like, "I love First Cow. Can we do a I western episode?" <laughs> and then <laughs> and then we were both like, "Well, we can't just do one." We we love the this problem genre. was yes, we had too many things we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but that is going to do it for us tonight. Uh, stay tuned for our part two of our three-part Western series coming to you in two weeks. Also, want to uh, be and- very clear that three-part Western month, uh, month uh, June, the month of Westerns, it does not close the book on potential future Western episodes. <laughs> we reserve the right to return to Westerns at any point. I was going to say, how many times have I made you do a horror-themed <laughs> show of some species? Um If you would like to follow the show, uh, you can find us on all social media outlets at DYDYH Podcast, uh, including, which is a feed we share with our sister show, Love Ya, uh, the show that I do with Pete's wife, Marin, that updates on alternating Wednesdays to this one on the same feed, where she and I watch a YA streaming movie or adult rom-com and then talk about it. Our last episode was on the Netflix original Desperados, which stars uh, a lot of people who are much better than the movie. (laughs) Which uh, sounds like it like it's like it could be a Western movie, but isn't is not. Um, You can follow me individually. Uh, do Do you know what you all are doing next week? No, I do not. That's a fair answer. I uh, edit your shows and I also don't know. It's on the episode. Um, but we alternate adult rom-com with teen movies. So it's a teen movie, which means I picked it and just can't remember which one it is. 
Uh, but you can follow me individually at all the places at Magical Martha, including Letterboxd, where I am uh, compiling a comprehensive list of all of the movies that we watch for Love Ya in a definitive ranked list. Haven't decided yet if I'm going to start doing that for Did You Do Your Homework, since that is a lot more movies at this point. <laughs> I have at least been logging the movies that I watch for this podcast uh, with the tag DYDYH, so I could go back for at least two years and find out what we've watched, but I am not a consummate list maker like you are. <laughs> uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture, uh, just retweeting people a lot, you know, uh, occasionally dropping my own uh, Bond moths into the feed. Yeah, that, that's it, that's all I got. You don't rank anything. Or I don't, you don't rank rate anything. anything. No, I'm not you a ranker. You don't rate anything. No. <laughs> How do you know if you liked it? Um, I don't... <laughs> Listen, I look at the cover of that movie and I'm like, that was good, or, right, yeah, not a fan of that one. <laughs> oh. Um, I, I, in the moment, I don't want to, like... I rate things on untapped and everything gets a 4 to 4.5, unless it's outstanding or fine. Um, and it'd be the same, it'd be the same with this. I, I might not remember if I, I might not remember that I've actually watched a movie, but once I'm reminded that I've seen it, I can remember if I liked it or not. That's my I guess. But, and also I'm not a list maker, so I don't need to rank, uh, to, to rate it. Oh, I, I enjoy it. Putting things in order. Yes. Um, so I'm glad. I think we just started following each other right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I write a newsletter sometimes, which you can find at tinyletter.com forward slash magical Martha. I don't write it regularly, but I do write it sometimes. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Um, I don't remember the outro to this program. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Yes, we will talk to you in two weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. <laughs> I got there. Huzzah! <laughs> I, I was hoping that if I threw the line to you, you'd be able to take it and run, to run it all oh the way God. in. I'm a disgrace. <laughs> hey, uh, as long as you're able to keep track which episodes you say class dismissed and which episodes say we love you, uh, which you have successfully done for like two years now, uh, you're you're all set. <laughs>